0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 13, Into the Abyss, Part 2 of 2. Welcome back. When we last left off, we were discussing the July Crisis of 1914, and how the events of that summer unfolded on continental Europe. Beginning on July 28th, the dominoes began to fall one after another resulting in France, Germany, Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Serbia, all declaring war by August the 3rd. The last domino to fall would be Great Britain, who, citing their own reasons, would join the following day. Now as I said at the end of the last episode, we're going to continue our discussion by talking about events in Britain, and why the British people decided to throw their hat into the ring. They did so under unique circumstances, as they were the only Entente member who still exercised some control of their fate by August 1914. At the center of the debate for British intervention was the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey, who historians have widely criticized for being indecisive and who woefully miscalculated the grave situation developing on the mainland. So after we cover events in Britain, we will pull our focus back and look at the July Crisis as a whole, and offer our own answer to why, after nearly a century of peace, the European concert proved unable to stop the tides of war from reaching their shores. So, by the summer of 1914, Great Britain was floating in what many have called a cloud of blissful ignorance. Their alliance with the Japanese notwithstanding, the British Empire remained unhinged from continental obligations. The doctrine of the free hand, which outlined the Empire's right to pursue policies without hindrance from the continent, provided a sense of security which was the hallmark of the Empire's longevity. The presence of the Royal Navy and geographic attachment from the mainland meant that decision makers in London could turn a blind eye to events elsewhere, and remained focused on domestic issues at home. This remained the mindset of Prime Minister Herbert Asquith and the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Until July 23rd, London was not overly concerned with events in Sarajevo, but was facing their own imperial crisis which demanded their attention, and that crisis came in the form of Ireland. The Irish, who would remain a source of agitation throughout the war, were campaigning for their own right to hold separate elections in the Catholic-dominated South. In London, they were trying to figure out which loyalist counties would be excused from the Home Rule movement, and how best to reshuffle representation for the lost Catholic votes. It sounds trivial to what was unfolding elsewhere, but the Irish question was a polarizing issue throughout all levels of British society, because it was seen as a matter of imperial security. You will recall that the central tenant to all British policy was the preservation of empire regardless of the cost. It was, after all, what brought them to sign the alliance with Japan and the Entente Cordiales, So the big fear in London was if the Irish could gain semi-independence, it could spark a chain reaction throughout other holdings like India, the Caribbean, or Hong Kong. Believe it or not, the only reason why Asquith's cabinet was in session on July 23rd was to discuss the Irish question, but it took a dramatic turn when Sir Edward Grey read aloud the Austrian ultimatum to Serbia. Everyone in attendance knew that the stakes had just been raised, and while there was little doubt that war between Austria and Serbia was imminent, no one saw any reason for Britain to be involved. Following Gray's rendition of the terms, Prime Minister Asquith noted, There seems to be no reason why we should be anything other than spectators. Asquith's observation perfectly summarizes the situation which Britain would soon be facing. Unlike Germany, Austria-Hungary, or Russia, Britain did not have a supreme authority who had the final word on military affairs. Things had to be put to a parliamentary vote, and there was an official opposition who needed to be brought on board. And following the news of the Austrian ultimatum, Neither the Liberal nor Conservative Unionists in Parliament saw any reason to intervene, because both believed that whatever conflict was brewing would remain a Balkan issue. That was their initial reaction, however, but as the days were struck from the calendar, the situation on the continent was becoming dire. In the East, Austria, Russia, and Serbia were threatening mobilization, and in the West, Germany seemed hell-bent on following suit. It was clear now that the oncoming conflict threatened to spill out beyond the Balkan borders, But while everything was pointing to general war, the British still had not decided on a course. The question of intervention on behalf of France and Russia was a hot button topic, which apparently was known to have spoiled a few family dinners in all echelons of British society. British leadership was also fractious. Despite a pro-intervention faction within the Liberal Party, Asquith, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, remained adamantly opposed to intervention, citing the economic consequences which would no doubt follow. The Conservative opposition under Andrew Bonar Law faced a similar problem, as their party, although in favour of intervention, could not agree on the role Britain should play, whether in military or diplomatic capacities. It was in this stormy atmosphere which Sir Edward Grey attempted to reach conciliation. The Foreign Secretary found himself handcuffed. He was strongly in favour of intervention but was limited to what he could provide Britain's allies, since any notion put before Parliament was processed at a snail's pace. In his book, Dreadnought Britain, Germany, and the Coming of the Great War, Robert Massey summarizes Gray's doctrine into four succinct points. First, Gray agreed with Asquith and Lloyd George that war would be a catastrophe, but despite his pacifist nature, understood that Britain had to get involved. If this was to be a great power war, then Britain had to be there. Two, that Germany, not Austria-Hungary, was the main threat to European stability. Third, that Britain would need to support France and Russia in some capacity whether through diplomacy, economic, or military intervention. The fourth tenant was what in the end would save Britain from total abandonment, and that was make no commitments that it could not hold up. Gray believed that if Parliament voted down the notion for intervention, it was better to disappoint their allies with the news than risk the honor of the empire by retracting guarantees made in jest. From July the 28th to August the 2nd, Gray would meet with a rotating door of ambassadors and foreign ministers. He met frequently with the French ambassador Paul Cambon, who pleaded with the Foreign Secretary to convince Parliament to declare themselves one way or another. Cambon no doubt wanted British help, but it is interesting to note that even he had his doubts, and he was not alone in that. The Supreme Commander of the French Army, Joseph Joffre, had no clauses in his plans to accommodate a British expeditionary force. Plus, the general belief in both France and Germany was that if the British did show up, it would be too little or too late to be of any effect, thus giving way to Wilhelm's famous quip that Britain was nothing but a nation of shopkeepers. On August 2nd, 1914, the day Roman Poincaré ordered France to begin mobilization, Cambon met with Gray and delivered one of the great zingers of the First World War. When Gray gloomily notified Cambon that Britain was still undecided, the French ambassador retorted, Should the word honor be stripped from the English vocabulary? You can almost sense the frustration of Cambon during these last few days of peace. In a similar meeting with Lloyd George, the French ambassador warned the finance minister that if Britain remained neutral and France won against Germany, then Britain could guarantee that France would do everything in its power to crush the empire. As John Young writes, it was an alarming way to win friends. Now as many of you are already aware, the factor which drove Britain to declare war on Germany was the violation of Belgian neutrality. But it is important to keep in mind that the British did not make this decision based on their moral outrage that Germany had attacked innocent little Belgium. The issue of Belgian neutrality first picked up steam when it was clear that the Germans would attack through the small country en route to France. Historically, Britain has had a long-standing interest in the security of the European Low Countries, a region east of the English Channel, which today forms up Belgium and the Netherlands. The concern the British had was what would happen if the region fell into enemy hands. For one, this would threaten the security of the home islands, since there was not a lot separating Britain from the mainland, and secondly, would limit the effectiveness of the Royal Navy, which was the linchpin of the entire imperial defense system. This was one of the key reasons when, in 1839, a treaty signed by Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia guaranteed the independent sovereignty of the newly formed Belgium. The treaty outlined that none of the signatory powers could travel through Belgium unless the Belgian king granted permission. So, Sir Edward Grey was able to use the German invasion to sway support for British intervention. But it was not because Britain felt some maternal responsibility to defend the country. At the core of it, the fall of Belgium was a threat to British security, and if Britain did not intervene on Belgium's behalf, it would be like Britain could not live up to its treaty obligations of 1839, in other words, a sign of imperial weakness and decay. But there remained one problem. This could only work if the Belgians resisted the German advance with military force. Even if the army met the Germans in the field, the British could not intervene because that would put them in violation of the 1839 treaty as well. On August the 3rd, Gray met with the German ambassador Karl Max Lichnowsky and informed him that Britain would be forced to make the necessary preparations against Germany if the neutrality of Belgium was violated. Lichnowsky, who was opposed to the war, reported Gray's statements to the Chancellor Bethem von Holwig in Berlin. The German Chancellor famously remarked that the idea of Britain going to war with Germany over the terms of an often forgotten scrap of paper referring to the 1839 treaty was ridiculous, and in essence he was right. Britain was going to war for their own security interests, and not because they felt morally obliged to help the Belgians. But on that same day, still August the 3rd, Grey received another piece of news which would help him push the vote. King Albert I of Belgium sent a telegraph informing the Foreign Office that his army would resist the German advance. It was imploring London to send support. This gave Grey both the grounds and justification to present his case to Parliament. After his speech that evening, non-interventionists flocked en masse to the side of intervention the British propaganda machine went into full effect. Using the defense of Belgium as justification, it was an easy sell to the public. The image of a barbarous Germany raping and pillaging brave little democratic Belgium was enough convincing to the public that something had to be done. Front pages of newspapers were dominated by copies of the 1839 treaty, highlighting the signatures of the participant nations, and underneath, in bold letters, were Holweg's infamous scrap of paper remark. Within hours, the British public were strongly in favour of intervention. By then too, men like Lloyd George and Prime Minister Asquith had come around to see that the writing was on the wall. The German invasion of Belgium gave the British a moral justification for intervention, but more accurately, reflected the long-held belief of the free hand. The empire would be going to war on its own accord, and not because the French or Russians had guilted them into doing so. Following his speech to Parliament, Gray received a standing ovation and by the late evening an ultimatum was sent to Germany. When no reply came by the midnight deadline, Britain was at war. Although it has been regarded as apocryphal by many historians, it was sometime between August the 3rd and 4th when Gray made his famous remark, The lamps are going out throughout Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. But I feel it is also worth mentioning that despite all the talk of non-intervention, Britain would have been dragged in eventually. Sir Edward Grey understood that the longer they waited, the chance of France falling to the Germans only heightened by the day. The Foreign Secretary recognized that if Britain were to get involved, it was better to do so on their own accord, and the violation of Belgian neutrality provided the most convenient justification to do so. There has been a lot of talk about Britain's entry and whether or not it was the right decision. British historian Neil Ferguson being one who argued that it was a mistake to get involved. But whether the decision makers in London believed it or not, Britain had no choice in the end. And I think that privately they all thought the same thing. If Britain stayed out of the war, and Germany defeated France and Russia, then that would have eliminated all sense of British security. A German-dominated continent would not have been something Britain could work with, because with no allied or neutral states, their foothold on the continent would have been dependent on German goodwill and would have significantly reduced the empire's international standing. But on the other hand, what if France and Russia were victorious? Then, Britain risked facing a Franco-Russian alliance, and it is fair to say that the two former Entente allies would not have been very happy with Britain at all. Their noncommittal attitude would not have won them many friends from the international scene, they would have to face the wrath of their former allies on their own. So I think at the end of the day, Britain had to intervene, because fighting a great power war was what great powers did. The thing which has always startled me about the July crisis is how fast the European system crumbled. It had taken just 37 days, from the assassination of Ferdinand on June 28th to the British declaration of war on August 4th. To put that into perspective with some of the other crises we have discussed thus far, the first Moroccan crisis lasted from March 1905 to April 1906, Bosnia-Herzegovina September to March 1909, the Balkan Wars on and off again from October 1912 to June 1913. Each one of these threatened at some point to drag the great powers into war, but at the last minute had always been saved through skillful diplomacy or cooler heads prevailing. So what was it that made the summer of 1914 so volatile? There were several things which have always stood out to me. For one, during the early stages of the crises, there was a severe breakdown in the relationship between civilian and military leadership. This is most noticeable in Germany and Austria-Hungary. Following Wilhelm's blank check of support to the Austrians, several key leaders of the Kaiser's government went off on summer vacation. The Kaiser himself departed for a cruise, while the chief of staff von Moltke, Tirpitz, and the Chancellor Bethel von Holwig followed soon after. In Austria, the Emperor Franz Joseph was notably absent for much of the time after July 5th. There has been a lot of speculation about why this separation occurred. The accepted theory is that if the leaders of Germany and Austria-Hungary had decided to cancel their vacations, then it would have tipped the Entente allies that something serious was brewing on the continent. By allowing their leaders to walk out the door. Military strategists like Conrad van Hutzendorf found it much easier to push their hawkish agenda through with only minimal protest. Plus, with guys like Fernhand out of the way, there are not many voices within the royal court of Vienna who could argue against any aggressive response against the Serbs. But this opens up another possibility, and this relates to one of the great difficulties in trying to understand the nature of the July Crisis. Each power was incredibly sensitive to how their image would be projected, and each power took careful steps to appear as the innocent party. With the Kaiser and Chancellor out of Berlin during these crucial stages, it would be easy for the Germans to fall back and claim their government knew nothing of Austria's plans, and to a certain extent they were successful in that goal. In the last episode, I noted that the Germans were kept in the dark about what the Austrians were up to, and I want to clarify. Men like Wilhelm, Chancellor Holwig, and Moltke were kept up to date about what was going on in Vienna, but they never saw the ultimatum before it was issued to the Serbs. In fact, Berlin was pretty peeved at Vienna because they did not actually receive a copy until July the 24th, nearly a full day after it had been delivered to Belgrade. And as far as I can tell, this shock was actually sincere, and not something put on for the newspapers. So if we are to accept the theory that Germany and Austria were scheming, we need to find something to account for Vienna keeping the Germans in the dark for almost two weeks. This segues nicely into a question I received from listener Joe Arnolds, who has been very active in providing comments and feedback, so I want to extend a heartfelt thank you for that. Joe's question was primarily concerned with Austria. What were their motives, their goals, and why did they not consult with their allies? From what I can pull from my research, it is fair to say that the Austrians were going to attack Serbia regardless of whether the blank check was issued or not. German support may have given them a confidence boost, but if Wilhelm declined during the July 5th meeting, I still think that Vienna would have pursued an aggressive response. But I want to clear up that when we were talking about Austria in July 1914, we were really talking about Konrad von Hutzendorf, who emerged as the central figure throughout the ordeal. In his biography of Hutzendorf, Lawrence Sondhaus argues that the Austrian chief of staff is one of the five or six men who bear the most guilt for the war. Personally, I would put Hutzendorf as number one. With the supporting caste in constant rotation depending on how I'm feeling. But we need to be careful when accusing Hutzendorf of such a role. As we have spoken about several times, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was in a state of decay and was desperately trying to cling to the power and prestige it once held. It was facing continual upheaval at home, as the numerous ethnic groups which included Germans, Poles, Slavs, Croatians, and Czechs were knee-deep in grassroots movements to be greater autonomy and representation in the empire. Although just slightly better off than the Ottomans, given another decade it would have slid into further total disrepair. So with this in mind, the idea of using war against their arch-nemesis Serbia as a way to re-establish former glory was a popular notion, not just in the emperor's court, but in all of post-Clauswitzian Europe. To many, like the foreign minister Birch told, any response other than war against the Serbs would be akin to rolling over and playing dead. It would be the end of the empire. But what made Hutzendorf stand out? And why I think it is fair to shoulder him with such a heavy accusation, is that he was willing to risk a general war in order to get his war with Serbia, and his greatest fault is that he completely discounted the threat from Russia. The man was like a horse with blinders on, and he fully expected that the German threat against Russia would be enough to convince them to stand down, thus creating an isolated war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. But crucially, in July 1914, Emperor Joseph did not have the moderating voice of Franz Ferdinand or the old foreign minister Herenthal, who restrained the emperor from declaring war back in 1909. Bertschold and Hutzendorf agreed in unison that a military response was necessary, and so when push came to shove that July, the aging emperor had little choice but to take the advice of his ministers. But if the majority of Vienna was in favor of war, why was there such a delay between July 5th to the 23rd for the ultimatum to be presented? There are three good reasons for that. The first is what we talked about last time, that the ultimatum was supposed to be issued on the 18th, but due to Poncadet's visit to Russia, was delayed until the French president was back en route to Paris. The second was because the other head of the dual monarchy, the Hungarians, wanted to ensure that the empire had pursued a diplomatic course before military response was necessary. The Hungarian prime minister, István Tissa, who believed the Serbs deserved a heavy-handed punishment, needed some convincing that an ultimatum was the appropriate response, and of course, once brought on board, requested that he approve of the terms before it was officially drafted and signed by the emperor. The third relates to Hutzendorf. Following his appointment in 1907, he initiated a program called Harvest Leave. Since Austria remained largely rural, the bulk of its army were part time reservists, who during the summer months would be released from active duty to tend to the farms. The summer harvests were crucial to supplying its population with adequate food throughout the winter months, which was often only supplemented through outside trade. So this meant that recalling troops from the farms scattered across the countryside required a bit more calculation and careful timing. Unlike Germany, Austria-Hungary lacked the complex railway system, so moving tens of thousands of men to their designated units would take a substantial length of time. Had Austrian command not had to deal with this reality, the timing of the ultimatum would have been reduced significantly. The thing which makes the July Crisis so fascinating and tragic is that the First World War could have been avoided at any moment. Historians like to look for that Eureka moment, where we can claim to find the source of where everything went wrong. But the summer of 1914 is like a game, where you can place the blame for the war on any nation and make a compelling argument. In my own analysis of that summer, I fully believe that every nation shares in on the guilt. The Serbs, whose complacency towards state-sponsored terrorism allowed the conditions for the Black Hand to flourish. The Austrian leadership, who so dead set on war could not see the dark path they were walking down. Russia, backed by French support and eager to avenge the humiliations of the past, refused to abandon Serbia again and ordered mobilization, thus triggering a similar response in Germany and ushering in a continental war. But what about Britain? How would things have been different if they set aside their national differences and declared their support of the Entente before the Germans declared war on France? Each of these questions opens up a Pandora's box, which you could easily spend a lifetime researching and arguing. There is a fine line when talking about the events of that summer, because you do not want to fall into the trap of alternative history. If Serbia had accepted the ultimatum, would the war have been avoided, and if so, for how long? These are questions which we will never have a definite answer to. Asking what brought about the First World War is like asking what brought about the fall of Rome. Ask 50 historians and you will get 51 responses, ranging from political, religious, economic, or environmental. But that does not mean we should not question and try to understand why those events transpired. Unlike the Second World War, where Hitler is the clear antagonist and provides us a face on which to hang the blame, we were not provided that convenience for the First World War. Conrad van Hutzendorf may have been the guy who first kicked the stone, but was certainly not alone in getting it down the street. The July Crisis seems very underwhelming when stacked up to what we have discussed up to this point. We started off episode 1 with the Congress of Vienna in the summer of 1815, a full century before the events in Sarajevo, and have looked at the various conflicts and crises which tested and failed to break the fabric of European peace. Fernand's death was the excuse used to set in motion an agenda, which Vienna believed would solve all of its internal and external troubles. But if we go from there, how do we end up with the battles on the Somme, Verdun, Tannenberg, or Langemark? The war which troops marched off to in the summer of 1914 was not the same war they would be marching to in 1915, 16, 17, or 18. Now that we are past the origins of the war, I plan on using this podcast to address that gulf in the narrative, because we need to be able to account for that discrepancy. To close off the origins of the war, I subscribe to the theory that although Austria put their chestnuts closest to the fire, when the Concert of Europe needed to work to solve the heightening crisis, it was hindered by its successes in the past. Austria and Russia had mobilized against each other before, so why should leaders in 1914 believe things would have turned out any different? That had been the status quo for quite some time. And men in Berlin, St. Petersburg, and Vienna did not know that what they were unleashing would end up taking the lives of over 20 million people and alter the course of human history. In the next episode, we will look at the opening stages of the war, as the Austrian advance would be checked by a determined Serbian resistance. In the West, the Germans would find their advance through Belgium slowed near the fortress of Liege, which gave the French and British precious time to mobilize and organize an offense of their own. That's all for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information. Comments, suggestions, and criticisms are always welcome. If you're interested in helping out The Great War Podcast, find us on iTunes and leave a star review, as I recently discovered that will help us in the ranking and expose us to any new listeners. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.